Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my new podcast from The Recount, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. On this episode of the pod, we are talking about, what else? The presidential COVID crisis, in some ways the least surprising October surprise in history, but at the same time a shocking, earth-shaking series of developments, and a story so large and all-consuming, with vast implications for both Donald Trump's presidency and the 2020 presidential campaign, that we brought in two guests to talk about it. The first, Washington Post White House reporter, Ashley Parker. The state of the presidency right now is sick. President Trump is literally sick with coronavirus. You have press aides, senior administration officials, and even the president's doctor all contradicting themselves. And our second guest, longtime Democratic strategist, Jennifer Palmieri. The state of the 2020 presidential campaign is stable chaos. In their respective fields, Ashley Parker and Jen Palmieri are as good as it gets. The killer peas, as I've christened them strictly for the purposes of this podcast. Parker started her career at the New York Times under the wing of Maureen Dowd and went on to cover Capitol Hill and the 2012 and 2016 presidential campaigns, including the improbable general election victory of Donald Trump. In 2017, she moved over to the Washington Post and the White House beat, where she won herself a Pulitzer Prize as part of a team reporting on Russian interference in the last election and its fallout. A tremendous reporter and a gifted writer, Ashley not only breaks news all the time, but has the rare capacity to put it into context and explain what that news means and why it matters. Operating on the other side of the press politics fence, Paul Mary is one of the premier Democratic strategists of her generation, Deputy White House Press Secretary for Bill Clinton. National Press Secretary for John Edwards' presidential campaign in 2004, Communications Director for the Obama White House, and for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. In those contexts and more, Palmieri has seen it all, done it all, and lived to tell the tale. As the author of two best-selling books about women in politics, a contributor to my weekly Showtime series, The Circus, and now the host of another new podcast from The Recount called Just Something About Her. Even before the stunning news broke that Donald Trump had contracted COVID-19, I had already been eager to hear from the killer peas about the first presidential debate and what it meant for the campaign as it hurtled into the home stretch. But the explosion of the Trump health story made me feel all the more fortunate that we had this conversation teed up and ready to go, as the staggering developments unfolding in Washington raised a plethora of urgent and fundamental questions. How sick is Donald Trump? How the hell did we get here? And what does it mean for both the final days of the campaign and the immediate days ahead in terms of the governance of the country. With this story still in its nascent stage, no one has complete, let alone perfect, answers to these questions. But in taking an early stab at all of them, you could do a lot worse than tapping the combination of frontline knowledge, savvy insight, and hard-won wisdom brought to the table by the killer peas. My friends, Ashley Parker and Jennifer Palmieri, joining me now on Hell in High Water. Ashley Parker, Jennifer Palmieri, it is great to have you here, as I'm now calling you the killer peas. You know, when we started this podcast, Hell and High Water, the thought was we were kind of reacting to this apocalyptic moment uh, that kind of engulfed us all in 2020. You know, the coronavirus, the recession, the racial justice reckoning, everything, you know, sort of seemed to be falling apart this year and and has only seemed to be falling apart more dramatically with each passing day, the wheels flying off the wagon, you know, this kind of end times feeling. But here we are on Saturday, October 3rd, just so everyone understands the timing of this podcast. It's now not quite 24 hours since Trump went into Walter Reed Hospital after being diagnosed with COVID-19. 
in some ways, the most predictable plot twist you can imagine in this story, given Trump's behavior over the past year. But still, when it happened, a kind of shocking moment. So, Ashley, I want to start with you and, and ask you just, you know, sitting here on this Saturday afternoon, where are we in this story right now? You and your colleagues at The Post wrote one of the best TikToks so far of the days leading up to Thursday night when Trump got diagnosed a little past midnight Thursday. And, you know, we found out that Trump and his wife, the First Lady Melania Trump, had coronavirus. So on the basis of that story and your reporting to date, actually, I should say you're reporting to this hour, what do we know about how the president got the virus and what the White House did as they learned that he had it? Thank you. And that was actually the exact question, you know, our editors kind of tasked us with answering, which was, how did we get to here, right? As sort of specifically and granularly as we could accurately tell this unfolding tale. Um, and you're right, there's some holes that we don't know, in part because the White House doesn't even seem to totally know them yet. And it's interesting just how much this uh, story has even changed in the past 72 hours. So for instance, the first person we, the public, heard of in the president's orbit who had coronavirus was Hope Hicks. She's counselor to the president. She's an incredibly close aid and confidant of his. And I think because that news broke first, there was a potentially incorrect, but a widespread assumption that hope was patient zero, right? Just because we knew about her first. And then the initial assumption after hope had it, and then we find out that late Thursday night, the president and the first lady had it, was that hope is patient zero and it has spread. But as we report this out, I think it's important to say we have no idea who is patient zero. Um, but as we go back and try to figure out who had it first and was there a super spreading event, I don't think we can definitively say there was. But a lot of the evidence goes back to a ceremony in the Rose Garden Saturday for Trump's uh, pick for the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. And that's how we lead our story. I mean, we were very struck by this ceremony, we sort of called it, it was before times, right? Or at least it had the feel. I mean, it was literally before half of the government has been stricken by this virus, but it also had the feel of before times, right? There, people were not wearing masks. They were not socially distant. Um, they were not talking about coronavirus. They were talking about something you would want to talk about in a traditional Republican administration, which is appointing a conservative to the judiciary. It, it felt celebratory in a way that most things when over 200,000 Americans are dead do not feel celebratory. It was a beautiful day out. And then from there, you see a stunning number of people who were all very close together uh, physically coming down with the coronavirus. I mean, each it feels like every couple of hours there's a new disclosure of someone who has it. And that's kind of the the story we set out to tell. There is an aura of, in, of kind of invincibility around inside that bubble. If you work at the White House, you feel safe. You know, you are surrounded by the Secret Service, the most highly trained uh, protective force in the world. And if you work there, you feel secure inside that White House. At least that's always been my impression from talking to administration officials over many, many years. But Jenna, I, I'll ask you this question. Can you explain the, the combination of the, the general sense of invincibility that governs all White Houses, the sense of impermeability on one side? And on the other side, this virus is raging and people are pointing out that the president's behavior is reckless over many months and the behavior of people inside the White House, people not wearing masks to work, the culture of kind of willful ignorance about this. I just want to hear you kind of do some anthropology about that. 
The White House is a really isolating place, even in conventional White Houses like Obama and Clinton. Um, it feels as if when you work there, it's a very, the West Wing is a really small space. Um, there's no windows. Um, you don't even know what time of day it is. You spend 14 hours a day with the same 11 people, seven days a week. And it becomes this weird parallel universe. You almost feel as if you don't exist in the everyday world. Um, and that's, you know, and that's with a conventional White House. And I think um, I don't have a lot of experience in being inside the Trump White House, but I did go, I did spend a few hours there uh, when I interviewed Kellyanne um, Conway a few weeks ago. And it did, you know, it had that feeling, you know, I was like, this is a, this, this place is a self-reinforcing universe and um, everyone agrees with everyone. I think they think that they are invincible when it comes to politics. They think they're invincible when it comes to this virus. And that probably made them pretty reckless, like as we saw. And and I do just want to add that in talking to people once they found out that the president had coronavirus, I think you're right. There was probably a sense of invincibility that it it couldn't happen to them. But even once they found out that the president had coronavirus, they had concerns about what it meant for them. Were they going to test positive? What did it mean existentially? What did it mean politically? But it took them longer than you would expect to grapple with. What does it actually mean for the president in his health? Because they, again, thought that despite knowing he somehow got this, that he would be in his own Trumpian way, invincible to this too, right? And so right. they didn't immediately go to, could could this become a Boris Johnson scenario, right? We have a 74-year-old man who has a number of comorbidities, including that he's an older man, that he is, I think, technically obese or certainly overweight, that he has high cholesterol. He is someone who, based on the statistics, the, the virus should run a severe course. And that was not, they just sort of thought Trump, in the way he has defied all the rules of political gravity, would defy the rules of public health gravity as well. Right. And yes, and I and I think I mean, that's, you know, Donald Trump works very hard to project that. And that gets to the next thing I want to really talk about. Right. What do we currently believe about about the timeline of when Donald Trump found out he had covid and what he then did? And what does the does the, the this kind of series of events today around a timeline that had to be amended almost immediately? What does that say about the state of the Trump White House and its ability to be transparent, be clear, be accurate, and be honest. This is the White House that has a history of, of lying and misinformation and spin that can't get even basic facts right in the best of times, who in 24, 48 hours has put out ton uh, about something of the utmost importance, the health of the president of the United States has put out you know, contradictory, misleading information we now know to be false. But as we best understand it, the president was found out that he was positive Thursday evening. He took uh, one test, um, a, a rapid test where the results are not perfectly accurate. I think he got that back uh, you know, a little earlier Thursday evening, my sense is he got it back before that Hannity interview. You'll notice in the Hannity interview when he's talking about if he does or does not have the virus, he's pretty subdued. It's not his typical bluster that he's safe and he gets tested. And then he officially found out very late Thursday night into Friday morning. Um, so as of now, and again, this can all change, but our understanding is he did not know that he personally had the virus when he 
went to Bedminster, did the fundraiser. That said, uh, the White House was aware that one of his top aides who had been around him and all the staff, Hope Hicks, did have the virus. And they kind of grappled with the decision of what to do and decided to allow the president to go forward and move forward. And the other thing I want to note, and this wasn't our story, but was Friday. We know the president has the virus. He's not doing great. He's not feeling well. The virus is not running an asymptomatic course, right? And he is deteriorating throughout the day. We don't quite know what that means because they have not been transparent. But one of the reasons they made the decision to bring him to Walter Reed was so that if he deteriorated further and deteriorated in a scary and problematic way, twofold, A, he would be right at a hospital, right? He could get the best treatment immediately available. And B, so that it wouldn't be a public relations nightmare because they wanted the president to go to the hospital if he had to go the way he did yesterday, walking out to Marine One on his own volition, wearing a suit. They did not want him to be rushed out in a stretcher and medevaced there. Um, So there was enough concern that they felt like for a number of reasons, both health and PR, it was important to get him there Friday. So, uh, Palmieri, here's the thing. Putting aside the timeline and when the president did or did not contract the virus and what the events he should or should not have attended, the public events, uh, there's a larger sort of problem here that the White House is dealing with, and that's the sort of crisis of credibility. Kellyanne Conway, who just got uh, diagnosed as having COVID-19, George Conway, her husband, famously anti-Trump husband, sent out a tweet just now that said, quote, they have lied about virtually everything from the very first day of the administration. You think they're not gonna lie about this? And I think that tweet pretty much encapsulates the problem here that the Trump White House is dealing with and that we're all dealing with in some sense. Jen, you've worked on campaigns, you've worked in the White House, so you know that the main currency that you have in politics, but especially in the White House, is credibility. And it's the case in this White House, you know, that for four years, the president has lied promiscuously, uh, constantly, relentlessly about pretty much everything. And that as we saw that happen over the course of four years, a lot of us predicted that a day would come when there would be a crisis and the president would need to deliver important, vital, actionable information that people would be eager to hear. And he would not have the credibility necessary to deliver that information and have people believe him. And I think really that time has now come. People really need to know what the fuck is going on. And every word coming out of the White House and now the doctors representing the president's health, everyone is immediately skeptical of. So I'd like you to kind of address this question, like, how fucked are they? That must be a terrifying place to be from the point of view of the White House to have no one believing what you're saying in this moment. I think the public probably has a sense that the that White House staff lie all the time to reporters. And that's really, you know, I don't, prior to this administration, it's really not the case. Like you work really hard as an individual so that you can be effective on behalf of the president, you can be effective on your career, you protect your you protect your uh, credibility. And um, so that the press know when you say something like you should not write that, that is not true, that they won't do it. And they have some um, some. Uh, assurance. And then, you know, you take that up to the meta level of the currency of the presidency of the United States having credibility when it comes to speaking for, you know, when you're dealing with other governments or you're dealing with the American people. We never had a pandemic um, that, you know, came to the U.S. the way COVID did, but we had Ebola. And that's just like the number one concern is ensuring that when you need to inform the American public on something about their safety or their health, that you have the ability to do that. And 
the people that are dealing with the press don't actually know what happened, don't know what's true. We're relieved to see the doctors. The doctors tell them something that's in conflict with what they believe to be true, and they don't know what to do about it. I mean, this is why, you know, when we had, during the Obama administration, we had the Boston Marathon bombing, we had um, Ebola, even, you know, you know, in, the, in retrospect, seemingly dumb things like the Obamacare website not working we would not react in the moment and sometimes to the aggravation of reporters and also to our detriment politically until we actually knew the facts. Because in the, I just know, I mean, so many crises I've been through in the White House is Oklahoma City bombing, where the initial reports were that, you know, it was a, it was a Mideastern looking man that was responsible for it. Turns out, you know, it was an American. And uh, the same thing with the Boston Marathon bombing, that the, the, the initial reports are always wrong. And it's even true when the initial reports are coming from your own staff because they get confused, they get excited, they want to be the ones that deliver the news, they want to be the ones that know all the answers. And the press staff have to ferret through all that and um, in order to understand like what is safe to put out in the public. And then, you know, you get to a point like this and it matters that we don't know what to actually think of the President of the United States is doing relatively well or is in a crisis mode and um, that, you know, could be in very grave danger in the next 48 hours. That matters for Americans, it matters for the people that don't wish America well, our enemies, um, rivals we have in the world. And yeah. yeah, like this is a moment where it came home to roost. All right, I'm going to take a quick break here and pay some bills for the podcast. And we'll be back after that with Ashley Parker and Jennifer Palmieri. And we are back with Ashley Parker and Jennifer Palmieri. And I want to talk, I want to look back a little bit, try to place this moment in historical context. And, and Ashley, I want to start with you just on this one question, right? It's been something I've wanted to ask you for a long time. I don't cover the Trump administration on a day-to-day basis. You do. Um, and, you know, I think about your history, you know, someone who studied under the wing of, of our mutual friend Maureen Dowd at the very <laughs> outset of her career, was trained apparently very well. Maureen is someone who has a, of an incredibly strong reportorial instinct and, uh, and a keen eye for bullshit. You could hardly have a better mentor than her. You know, your first presidential campaign that you covered was 2012. You then covered 2016. You now cover the White House and, and obviously the campaign in that context. So just the question that runs through my mind is for people who cover this administration, like, were you prepared for what this is like? Uh, well, I would say, first of all, you're right. Maureen was in a, I mean, she, she is an amazing journalist and she was an amazing mentor to me. And I could do a whole, you know, hours long podcast just on that. Um, so I feel like that was very helpful in the sense that, you know, she would sometimes get criticized, frankly, especially when she covered um George H.W. Bush in a way that very few people covered him, which was uh, in, was not just the reporting, which she had locked down, but was also some of the personality and the color and the knock was like, that's armchair psychology. And I actually believe that that's incredibly important to be a well-rounded White House reporter. And a huge thing that helps me and uh, cover President Trump is that element of understanding not just the facts and the reporting and the sourcing, but sort of the the psychology of this man and his orbit and how that works. Um, so in that manner, I was prepared. Uh, I will also say one thing that helped prepare me was before I covered, and this is the first White House I've ever covered, but before I covered the Trump presidency in 2016, I covered, you know, poor, sad, sweet Jeb Bush until he dropped out for the New York Times. And then two days later, they put me on Trump. And I was one of, you know, two and a half reporters at the Times who actually not just covered Trump, but attended almost all of his events. Um, 
And so I think not just watching him on a live stream, but I think actually being there, being in the room, being around his supporters, talking to his supporters for hours, uh, seeing that energy and fervor and enthusiasm also again, gave me an advantage in that I had sort of like wrapped my mind around what this movement and, and what this team was, right? Um, and I understood its strengths and its weaknesses. Um, that said, one thing that was stunning was, and again, I've, I've, I've covered previous aspects of previous presidents, but I've never been a White House reporter. But my understanding was that in previous administrations, and I want to be clear, both Democratic and Republican, there were certain people you could just kind of trust, right? If like a Valerie Jarrett or David Axelrod told you something, um, you sort of had a sense it was true. That doesn't mean you didn't confirm it with other people and try to suss out more details. And same with like in the Bush administration, maybe a Karen Hughes or a Karl Rove or whoever, there were just some sort of like general arbiters of truth. And the thing that was tricky to figure out about the Trump administration, especially in the first year, you had warring factions and competing agendas, and they were all sort of playing their own internal war games, but out in the media, what was understanding, right? Like, who are the actual liars, right? Just like the straight up liars. And who are the people who don't totally lie, but they spin a lot and this is their very clear agenda and they're aligned with Bannon or they're aligned with Jared and the globalists or they're aligned with Reince and what does that mean? And then who are the people, and I think it's important to note this too, what Jen was saying, who are actually generally arbiters of truth. And even in the Trump administration, there are people who, you know, we write these sort of TikTok stories and we go to the White House and we say, you know, we're going to go through these 14 details where we plan to report. And there are some people in the White House who will say like, okay, number one, I have no idea how you found that out, but like, that's true. I can't wave you off of it, right? And same for number two and number three, number four. Like, you you are right that there was a screaming fight in the West Wing, but like to cast it as a big blow up would be incorrect. I know these two people, they're really valuable, and I saw them in the cafeteria 10 minutes later getting ice cream, right? So they sort of provide nuance and context. And then they'll say in number six, it's just not true. I was in the room when it happened. Someone is spinning you. I would not report that, and, and we trust them, and we don't report it. And so to cover the Trump White House, I sort of use a couple analogies. One is like... I began thinking, and I don't know that people did this in previous administrations, I began thinking of some sources as like Wikipedia, right? Like they're a good <laughs> jumping off point, but you would never cite them in a term paper. Right. There's other people who are kind of like Reddit, like you go down an insane rabbit hole, but like, I don't know, once every two dozen times they're right about something, right? That Trump did want to buy Greenland. Um, and then, and so the reason we, and this is the last thing I'll say, but in post stories, um, we often for these sort of big inside the room stories, we have a line um, that I think is sort of it's both widely mocked and now widely emulated where it says this story, you know, is the result of interviews with 47 White House aides, Republican lawmakers, outside Republican officials or friends and confidants. Um, yeah. You know, one of the key reasons we talk to that many people and we do that is to a tell you the story. This isn't just someone who has a vendetta, someone who was fired by tweet and is furious and B in order to do what we're supposed to do, which is bring you the truth as accurately um, and honestly, as fairly as we understand it is it's a kaleidoscopic approach where you really do need to talk to 47 people or 22 people to have a confident sense of, of what happened. Right. And, and I actually, you know, it's a, it's actually, it's funny. It's, it's basically the technique of writing narrative nonfiction in books. It's like what a lot of people do. I mean, that, that's not to denigrate it, but to, to exalt it. It's like the, if you're doing what Bob Woodward does or what I have done in some of my books where it's like, you're trying to talk to everyone in the room and trying to find a thing where if you can get, you know, there are a lot, everybody's trying to spin you and, and there will often be versions of events that are 
wrong in various ways. But if you triangulate enough and ask enough people enough different ways, sometimes you can get to a version of the truth that kind of everybody, like those are the things that everyone agrees about that actually happened. And if you triangulate enough, you're like confident that that version is as close to what reality is as you're, you're comfortable publishing that. Jen, I ask you this question, a question I don't believe I've ever asked you, but I, as I sat down and was thinking about this, going back to the crisis of credibility, I think about your history, right? We're going to take Barack Obama off the table right now and just and ask you, and I'll ask you this. Bill Clinton, John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, three candidates, one president, uh, one senator, one secretary of state, all three of them widely perceived to be liars by a lot of people in the public. You know, even people who like Bill Clinton think he was a liar about a lot of things, and if not a liar, a parser of truth to it to the nth degree. Many people think Hillary Clinton's a liar, a, a serial liar. You know, half the country thinks that. And John Edwards is just a liar. You know, lied about a lot of big things in the campaign in 2008 that you, in 2004, and particularly in 2008 when we got into the realm of him having a, a child out of wedlock, you know, in the middle of the campaign and lied about it, you know, ritually, persistently, and pathologically. So you've worked with your share of politicians with truth problems. And I, I raise that not obviously to be critical, but more to say, uh, you know, you're not unfamiliar with politicians, successful politicians for whom the truth has not always been always the highest value. So I ask you kind of how you make that distinction. Like, well, how would you how would you talk about why is Trump different? Because I think he is different, qualitatively mm -hmm. different from all three of those guys. I wouldn't necessarily call them all liars, but I would say all of them lied at, their, at different well, times. And all of them liar. contended... And all you, of them you can contended. say that about Bill Clinton and John Edwards, well, but you can't well, say that. But I, I would just say they all contended she's got, the with the she's got their reputation. I wrote two books about why she does it unfairly. Right, but, that's, that's, but this is my question. This is my question. There's the perception of them as having problems with the truth, all three of them. And that's a political challenge no matter what, right? So I, right. I, that's my question. Okay. Is what's the distinction between those three and the kind of, because Trump is in a totally different category, obviously, just in volume of lies and the quality of the lies. And those other three have different have different relationships with the truth. But I want to hear you talk about them and make the distinctions to kind of help illuminate why Trump is different. Right. So I really do take Hillary out of that bunch, though, because I think that um, she has this reputation. And I literally have written two books about why, you know, women, why we're suspicious of women, why we think they're lying, why, um, why we don't believe them. And it's just like, it's, and I think it sort of obscures the, your point about the other two. Um, first of all, it's a really hard thing to work for politicians that are lying. Um, you aren't sure what to believe. Um, you want to believe, uh, it's often convenient to believe, uh, them when they tell you things that you want to hear. And, um, you also, you know, with both of these men, I'm not, you know, I just sort of couldn't believe that they would do what, um, we now know is true, you know, with extramarital affairs in both, uh, cases I've, as, as I've grown older, I've, learn to, you know, give, give, give these sort of rumors more credence um, <laughs> than I did when I was younger. But it is like part of the problem is, is like, you wow, you, you can't believe they'd be that stupid so that, you know, they wouldn't do this. But then there's a difference with Trump where he lies, you know, politicians can lie to protect themselves or, you know, shade the truth to aggrandize their accomplishments or how they were received or something like that. And then with Trump, there's lying to create an, an entirely different universe um, 
he does it not just to not to protect himself or get himself out of a sticky situation or cover up for something he did. He does it to create an alternative reality. Um, Jen, I, I realize I asked you that question and it actually requires like a whole hour just to actually unpack. Yeah, it's a great. I'm realizing now that like you know, we're not going to be able to do it justice. But man, it's such a deep thing because politicians do, you know, so often uh, shade the truth, like making these distinctions is super, super hard. And um, I think it's one of the things that doesn't do our our political discourse a lot of good to like to lump all of them into the same category. And again, Trump is sort of sui generis. Anyway, I'm going to take a break and we'll come back in a second. And we're back here with Ashley Parker and Jennifer Palmieri. The next presidential debate, the town hall debate, debate number two is scheduled for Thursday, October 15th, which would be two weeks from when Trump's diagnosis was made, if we assume that Trump's diagnosis did not come until Thursday night, late Thursday night. Is there a world in which we think, you know, Trump gets better fast enough and people feel comfortable enough with having this debate that we assume the debate actually has a chance of happening? I'm dubious, I will say. Um, I had coronavirus in March and it took me about six weeks to feel like I could, you know, like walk up the flight of stairs. So... The idea that a man who's 20 years older than me, you know, he is not asymptomatic. We know that like he is experiencing symptoms and the idea that in two, that in two weeks from the day that he was quote diagnosed, uh, he's going to be <laughs> <laughs> on a debate stage that with a, Joe was Biden. Was that a Trump imitation? It wasn't. It wasn't. It was that weird voice you've heard before about the hush puppies. Um <laughs> The idea that Joe Biden, I mean, the idea that Donald Trump's going to feel strong enough to get on a debate stage in less than two weeks seems really unlikely to me. I think the extension of that is there's some chance that we won't see another debate at all. I think everyone's contemplating like that. that's at least a, a plausible outcome because the third one is the week after the second one, actually less than a week after the second one. So we may be done with debates. And, and I raise it just to ask this question. Um, and Jen, I'll stick with you just on this. You know, if that's true. You know, these are the three the three big things that happen after the conventions, the three big fall events that are potential game changing, dynamic shifting, tectonic plate moving things are the three big debates. You know, what what does it do to this to the dynamics of this race if there aren't these two debates and uh, Trump is is at least off the campaign trail for some decent number of the remaining days? What does that mean for our for for the state of this campaign? I think it's to Biden's benefit. Um, I have always thought that the debates would benefit Biden because his problem is getting being able to control the narrative because Trump just overwhelms everything. And um, and then, you know, the debates give you there's three solid times when you have a big audience, you can deliver straight a message straight to the American people. It didn't really work out on uh, this first debate because Trump was just um, was just so pugilistic. But, you know. I always thought that if there weren't debates, it'd be bad for Joe Biden, but I didn't contemplate the idea that there wouldn't be debates because Donald Trump had coronavirus. So I feel like uh, Biden can continue to campaign. They can do it in a low-key way, and uh, he still can get some attention, but it, but it's probably okay. I, I, I think that it's not, I don't think Biden's going to be losing much given these circumstances, if he doesn't have that debate stage. Ashley, I'm a simple man. Um, and it's, it seemed to me all along that, you know, it was, this race was simple in one sense. 
and put aside all these questions of, is there a hidden Trump vote? And could Trump eventually steal the election, which are interesting questions, and we can talk about them a little bit. But in the immediate of this campaign, you know, is the race a referendum or is it a choice? If the race is a referendum on Donald Trump's leadership, and if COVID is the biggest issue in America in 2020, the, the voters have spoken on that. Trump's approval rating on coronavirus has been in the mid-30s for months. And if it's that's the referendum, Trump and his leadership on COVID, you know, Joe Biden's likely to win that race. And this seems to me to be a thing that makes COVID front and center, you know, likely for the next few weeks. Very hard for President Trump and his people to talk about anything else. I'm not saying it's game, set, and match, and I'm not saying it's over. But man, this is a seems to me to be a gigantic problem for President Trump, no matter whether he gets well quickly or whether it takes longer or, you know, whatever happens, I can't see how this is a thing that could be to his benefit. Or am I just being too simple and and missing some clever way in which Donald Trump could jujitsu this thing into an advantage? You know, I feel like I'm, I'm a better reporter than pundit, but in talking to people in the president's orbit, they very much had the same thought as you. And the, they sort of have said this could go one of two ways. Um, the way they think it is more likely to go is the way you just articulated it, right? Which is that they don't want to be talking about coronavirus now. They are talking about coronavirus nonstop, but we threw this in our story. But, you know, someone said to me, the hit just writes itself, right? The president couldn't protect the country and he couldn't even protect himself. Um, and they think that is the easiest way that this flows because it is just so much easier to connect the dots and any good narrative needs to be pretty simplistic. And this is very simplistic, right? The president is a leader who presided over more than 200,000 Americans dead and couldn't even keep the most secure address in the country safe. Um, there is a thought, they say this is less likely, but that there is a... Um, an unexpected sympathy outcome, which which they acknowledge depends on the president's behavior, which, as always, is the one thing they can rarely control. And Trump himself can rarely control it. But is this idea that Trump gets the virus, he recovers and he comes out. And instead of sort of doing his typical Trumpian thing, which is tweeting nasty, dismissive, personal, possibly racist or misogynistic insults about his rivals, he expresses empathy with the American public. He doesn't say I'm wrong. He's never going to say I'm wrong. But he says, you know, what? like, I've been through this. I know how hard this was. This was incredibly difficult on my family. This, you know, was grueling on my body. Like, I know what it is like. And that is why I am triply committed to helping with a vaccine and, um, helping make sure we have the testing kits we need and that the doctors have the PPE and they were wonderful. And I want to make sure that every doctor in the country and every American in the country has all the advantages afforded to me, the president, Walter Reed. And they think if he sort of handles it exactly right, there's a world in which he gets a sympathy bump. He gets to seem not just responsible, but empathetic and that that could help. But they again, they, they say that the former scenario is far more likely. Well, that brings us to our last question, I think, here. And I, I do want to touch on it just because I think it is the thing that's on everybody's mind. You know, we've already engaged in a long running discussion of this increasingly conventional wisdom that like the overtime in this election could be a brutal period. We've heard the president and people like Steve Bannon say the only vote that counts is the election day vote. So we're going to fight every vote that's not one that was actually voted in a voting booth on election day. Every other one of these is going to be contested. And, you know, Bannon said to me the other day, it's going to be knife fights in the counting rooms, knife fights in the courtrooms, knife fights in Congress, knife fights in the Electoral College for the real war starts on November 4th. You know, Ashley, are you ready for that? 
like I've, you know, been doing this for 30 years. You've been doing it for less, but we all basically we like drive ourselves like maniacs up until election day and our whole like biorhythms and our whole metabolism is site is like geared to election day and then it's over. But everyone in our business now feels like they're like getting right, like realizing that this could go on, that they could be covering a really intense fight on multiple fronts with high stakes from from November 4th until January 20th of 2021. Are you ready for that? I mean, I, I don't think anyone thinks that this ends on Election Day. I don't think th- in terms of the decisions being made in newsrooms, right, there are sort of plans and contingency plans and coverage plans and that, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's very easy for editors to say, don't take a post campaign vacation because uh, American citizens are not allowed into most of the other countries in the world right now um, <laughs> and travel isn't safe. But suffice it to say, if that were not the case in, in yeah. other countries, weren't refusing us um, admission. I think editors would be saying like that points trip you're planning to take to Bali in December, like (laughs) don't, right? Um, So that is kind of where things stand. Uh, You know, am I mentally prepared? You know, probably as mentally prepared as I am to like get through a winter with two young kids and homeschool and a deadly virus. Um, Yeah, sure. Can I continue to cover the White House? Absolutely. husband. What? And a deadbeat husband. And a deadbeat husband. It's a joke. My husband is a wonderful partner. Um, But you know what I did? I like I lost my mind one day and I ordered a Peloton um, and it's getting delivered in November. And I am hoping that just like helps provide me with a little bit of sanity. I will need like not to, you know, full family murder suicide. So. Is that Let's too dark? The, is that too dark to end a podcast on? <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty dark. And just to say, for the record, I love Mike Bender. He's a great. He's a good friend of mine. And I, I'm, I'm just giving him shit. He's a great partner and a great person and a great journalist whose book, when he ever, when we eventually finish this on the Trump administration, is going to be great. We're going to love reading it. Jen, <laughs> is there any hope? You are the, you the one who has been said to me. I like to try to end this podcast on a light note. Yeah. Or at least well, on a note of optimism. Well, it is called hell and high water. So. Hell and high water. Not hell or high water. Hell and high water. But the thing of hell or high water is come hell or high water, it's a it's got implicit optimism built in it. It's like come hell or high water, we're gonna get there. Come hell and high water, we're still gonna get there. I don't know where there is in this case, but do you think like as you look at this very it's a very look it's a very dark time right. for a million reasons, and you know some of our institutions have held some of the guardrails have held during Trump, some have not, but. You jokingly occasionally say democracy died in November 2016, mm-hmm. and I think half jokingly, half not jokingly. You know, if Donald Trump gets defeated here, and I know that's what you want and what millions of people in America think is what's required mm-hmm. to renew American democracy, but is it also a thing where you say, I'm pretty confident that if we can get past Donald Trump, that there's a way to rebuild this thing right. and there's a way to to get back not to anything perfect because it was never perfect and not that there weren't always flaws and weren't always problems, but that we can kind of get this thing back on track and and start right. to kind of rebuild and reconstruct yeah. in a way that promises some hope for the country. Uh, these are the things that make me hopeful in that regard. One, I have been wrong about the 2020 cycle all along. <laughs> I thought I thought there was no way Joe Biden was going to be the nominee when he won South Carolina as big as he did. I thought it was too late for him to turn that around to a decisive victory and and Super Tuesday. And I was wrong about that. And, you know, what it shows is, you know, every time since 2016, when there has been a vote, uh, people have turned out uh, to vote in droves, whether that was the 2017 races in Virginia and 
um, New Jersey, the 18 midterms, the 2020 primaries, um, in which case they turned out to vote for um, Joe Biden in huge record setting numbers. And, you know, we know that a majority of Americans do not want Donald Trump to continue as president. And just like in my own life, you know, the people in my life who didn't vote in 16 and now can recite uh, when early voting is in different states, <laughs> you know, you're like, okay. Progress. And then you see, I see the protests, the relatively peaceful protests in the streets after George Floyd, the continued focus on Breonna Taylor. There has been a lot of justice denied in this country, but most people want it addressed. And I think, you know, it's one really interesting, John, um, one thing in your conversation with Bannon that he said about post November 4th, I can't remember exactly, but he he did qualify it a bit. Something like if it's clear, Trump will accept the outcome, you know, which, which sort of said to me, if there's a landslide, he's going to find a way to, you know, make himself the winner, to find somehow he's the winner and, and walk away from it. Uh, so like that gives me hope, but I, I do think if Biden wins, wins big, which means people like invested in the democracy, there's a way to rebuild and deal with all of the justice that's been denied, that's been piling up, um, the dysfunctional Supreme court, dysfunctional Congress. Um, it's going to be really hard for the next president to deal with all of that stuff, but a huge turnout on November 3rd shows the will and the belief that it could be possible. And and I just want to try to end on something that's slightly more <laughs> optimistic, which is to say that I don't want to say that what happens on November 4th and the days after will be a great story, but I think it will be a huge story and an important story and a consequential story um, that is deeply important for they will have real effects on the lives of millions and millions of Americans. And so, yes, as a journalist, I am always ready for that. Ashley Parker is essential reading. Like it's, I love the fact that Ashley, I like, have you gone from being, you know, a bright young rising star um, who I think when I first met was like, was really just really at Maureen's knee who now is like <laughs> one of the most essential reporters in the country. And it's just fucking awesome how much you've come to be like required reading for anybody who cares about politics and Jim Palmieri, my dear friend. Um, you guys are the killer peas. It took me a little while to come up with what that name would be, but then it popped around for a little bit. The killer peas, <laughs> yeah. if you guys ever decide to start and not like the killer bees, the killer peas. It's pretty good, actually. It's pretty good if you guys decide to either start like a hip hop group. an emo band or something? Yes, exactly. Well, an emo <laughs> band. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Emo. <laughs> um, you guys are delightful. Thank you for doing this. And uh, assalamu alaikum. Bye. Thanks for having me, John. Bye, hi, Ahmed. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Ashley Parker and Jennifer Palmieri for being here with us. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. It really helps people to find out about what we're doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Aliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Sari Soffer is our producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 